Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olabest. Last week, we discussed the book Women, Race, and Class by the controversial intellectual and cultural icon Angela Davis. That book was published in 1981 and undertakes the telling of American history with Black women as the main focal point. This week's book was also published in 1981, and it takes on a similar project, looking at American history and culture through a Black feminist lens. It's called Ain't I a Woman, of course, referring to Sojourner Truth's famous speech, and it's by the brilliant and beloved author Bell Hooks. Interestingly, although Angela Davis's book and Bell Hooks' book came out the same year and addressed similar topics, they're very different books. And one significant difference is that Bell Hooks had written the first draft of Ain't I a Woman 10 years earlier when she was a 19-year-old freshman in college at Stanford University. She published it when she was 29 after graduating with her PhD from UC Santa Cruz. And interestingly, Angela Davis taught at UC Santa Cruz after Hooks graduated. So Ain't I a Woman technically predates women, race, and class. And it reflects a younger voice and a different personality. And I'm really, really excited to discuss this book today and super excited to have this conversation with my guests, Manuela Zonensign and Ashley Jackson Beal. Welcome, Manuela and Ashley. Hi. Hello. How are you? So great to have you guys here. Thank you so much for being here. I'm kind of third wheeling today. Ashley and Manuela are close friends, and I think it will be so beautiful and really powerful to have you two discussing this work together. Um, because really one of my hopes with this podcast is that people will actually read more of these texts and discuss them with their friends and their families, which is also very much Bell Hooks's vision and her goal as well. So I'll just really quickly say how I know you two. Manuela and I know each other through our husbands. Manuela's husband, Andy, was one of my husband, Eric's first friends and best friends in business school. And they are still peas in a pod and partners in crime. And I'm so excited to have you here today, Manuela. You are absolutely brilliant and a fascinating person, a role model for my daughters, for me, and you're just doing so much great work in the world. And you've been a feminist and a scholar for a lot longer than I have, I think, your whole life. And hopefully you'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so I'm really thrilled to have you here today. And so excited to have you here today, too, Ashley. Ashley and I are new friends. We met recently through Manuela. And Ashley, also just the most incredible mind and soul. And Ashley, I'm so grateful to you because it was you who suggested this book to put it on the reading list for the podcast. And I've been recommending it to everyone I talked to ever since you put it on our reading list. So welcome to you both. I'd love to start with introductions. So if you could just talk about where you're from, not only on a map, but in terms of your family and community of origin and just some things that make you who you are. So Manuela, you could get us started and go first. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Uh, hi, everybody. It's such an honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you for having Ashley and me on your podcast and more fundamentally for starting and leading this incredible project. It's especially exciting to be here today because I'm just learning as a new mom how much the values of egalitarianism, curiosity, and what Jewish people call tikkun olam or repair the world really start early 
passing from parent to child. And this realization has led me to reconsider and appreciate anew how I was raised and how important it is that I start early with my own son. So a bit about me. I'm first off an immigrant and the child of immigrants and the grandchild of immigrants. So we have a long line of moving around, crossing borders. My sister and I were born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. My mom is American and my father is Brazilian. Each one had a parent who had immigrated my dad's dad to Brazil from Moldova, my mom's mom, to the U.S. from the Russian-Ukraine border. I trace a lot of my individual traits to those journeys. I consider myself scrappy, resourceful, frugal, curious for knowledge, um, really globally oriented and um, hard on myself and uh, holding myself and others to high standards, which is one of the reasons I've been digging in the last couple of years to think about racial politics in the U.S. Both my parents were activists and academics their whole lives. My father led the communist student movement in Brazil when he was a teenager. Then he had to flee the Brazilian dictatorship after university and go to Chile, where he worked on the economic team of Salvador Allende's democratically elected government. And then when the U.S.-supported coup led by Augusto Pinochet removed Allende's government, my dad fled the border to Colombia and eventually made his way to the U.S. where he got his Ph.D. from the New School in New York, which is considered the most left-leaning economics department in the U.S. Um, he then became a professor of development economics and before passing away 11 years ago, his last book uh, compared the economic benefits of affirmative action programs across the U.S., Brazil, and South Africa. And my mom worked with students for a democratic society while studying at the University of Chicago. And she was a freedom fighter helping to register black American voters in Tennessee. And um, I just want to call out Bob Moses passed earlier this week, mm -hmm. and he helped to set up the freedom fighters. So it's it feels particularly poignant to talk about this book today. Um, so my mom has just been a badass and, you know, pushing the envelope her whole life. Um, she did her anthropological field research focused on Afro-Brazilian matrilineal religious groups in the Northeast of Brazil. Um, and then she went back to New York to finish her PhD at the new school. And that's where she and my dad met. And um, they eventually moved to Brazil. My mom eventually taught the first university level courses in Brazil on feminism. So um, she went on to have an amazing career in social entrepreneurship um, but, you know, all of this is to say that from my earliest memories, dinner table conversations were around social inequality and the interplay of gender, race and class. And, you know, my parents made sure I went to integrated public schools and that we always had friends um, you know, across different generations of different races and nationalities and backgrounds. So in retrospect, you know, this was heavy, complex stuff. And it was a lot for me growing up, especially since we moved a lot and I've struggled for a long time with my immigrant identity. So I think I sought some distance from the topic. Um, and I've instead focused on climate change and environmental issues, but it's amazing now seeing how climate change really is also integral to social issues. Um, 
And the more we understand about the rapidly deteriorating state of our planet, the more we're also learning that the same inequalities of the past will continue to rear their ugly heads. And it means that the people who already experience the greatest burdens um, will suffer the most with climate change. So I definitely think of my work as a serial clean tech entrepreneur, um, as really also being related to um, social inequality um, and making sure that everybody has access to the resources we need. So my current startup is called Kadea, and we deliver convenient quality water without waste through a closed loop water bottle service. So think of it as city bike for water bottles, but focused on offices and um, military bases. So, you know, I have now been able to come back around more mature and better informed to think about a lot of the dinner table conversations I had growing up and to apply them more directly in my life. Um, and in large part, you know, I'm really grateful to one of my best friends, you know, the other guest here, Ashley Beal, who um, has been really patient and thoughtful and curious with me as we've discussed race relations and feminism over the last few years during an awesome book club that we were in. Um, and then for suggesting that we read uh, Bell Hooks. And um, she has an incredible, beautiful, brilliant da daughter, Bell, who I'm honored to call my goddaughter. And I just have so much more to learn. So um, it's really because of her that we're here with you today. Fabulous. Thanks so much, Manuela. Ashley, can you tell us about yourself? Um, yes. Um, it's a hard act to follow, Manuela. <laughs> um, so um, I grew up actually in two states um, that were, and, and when I say them, you'll know that there are two different worlds. Um, I was born in, in Louisiana, um, but I moved shortly after I was born to California um, in the 90s. So I was exposed to really a lot of different cultures and communities and different ideologies in California. Um, and then when I was 13, I moved back to Louisiana. Um, so I was always really aware of the segregation and the class inequality, but most namely, I was I was most confronted with sexism. Um, I went to an all-Black private school. Um, it was a lab school, so it was professors of the college and administrators send their kids to these schools. Um, so in high school, I never really interacted with people who weren't black. Um, because segregation was so deeply entrenched in that area, my entire life was black. My doctor was black, my dentist, nurses, teachers, principals, everyone was black, 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 black. <laughs> so my, my dominant experience was not with daily racism, like most black people, certainly the ones up North. Um, but daily sexism. And my mother was a black feminist, was, is, and a woman unafraid in every sense. And she encouraged me to push back on the administration, on my peers, on the social norms um, that reinforced in every way possible that boys were more important than girls. Um, needless to say, I didn't change anything in Louisiana. It's still the same. All these However many years later, I won't reveal how old I really am. Um, but I did discover that fighting for equality felt right to me. 
and it felt good. Even if there was no net change, I felt good about trying to change things. I decided I could do more if I were more educated. So I threw myself into my books and I was always, always autodidactic. So I chose to read books about women and by women. Um, at that, at that time, it was mostly like classical fiction and the nonfiction was like science and evolutionary theory. Um, but like Manuela said, I found through this process that I was interested in science and I discovered that, um, there are many disparities, racial and gender bias in science. Um, I discovered the story of Henrietta Lacks and it really touched me. Um, and hers was an allegory on black women's simultaneous importance and degradation. And I felt very deeply connected to her. And I felt even more of a duty to be involved in the science world. I initially thought that path would be into medicine, but I discovered that Black women are really underrepresented in bench science. So I decided to pursue that. Um, I wanted to address disparities in how Black people are included in scientific research at every level. That desire led me to pursue um, neurobiology. And that pursuit made me understand that women in general are un underrepresented in science, um, not just Black women. And as a result, the scientific community prioritizes development of silly drugs like Viagra, while birth control has essentially been the same since the 70s. I haven't revolutionized the science world yet, but I think I'm really excited to see the numbers of Black women in natural science research is increasing and the general awareness that there is a disparity and there's a real problem with getting black women into STEM sciences, it has really improved and it's being acknowledged in a different way now. So um, I, I, Manuela is one of my best friends. She's godmother to my beautiful black daughter. So her awareness and active pursuit of knowledge in the area of black feminism means a lot to me. So I'm really happy to be here together because I believe women can band together and create real change for our gender, but it requires many authentic conversations about intersectional feminism. And I'm glad we're doing that today. And I'm glad to be a part of that today. Beautiful, Ashley, thank you. And no author could be better for that than Bell Hooks, don't you think? I mean, and again, you're the one who brought Bell Hooks to us. So thank you, Ashley. Thank you. So I have one more question before we dive in, and that is just thoughts on breaking down patriarchy. And you can either interpret that as like the phrase breaking down patriarchy or what patriarchy has meant in your life or what led you to the podcast, kind of however you want to interpret that. So as I mentioned before, Amy, your podcast has given me the opportunity to revisit ideas and text that I once attempted to understand, but couldn't at that time. It's opened up a new conversation with my mom who grew up referencing these materials and raised me explicitly as a feminist. And you've given me an excuse to reference the phrase breaking down patriarchy casually, <laughs> which has initiated some pleasantly surprising conversations with people I already consider feminists who get the phrase and nod their heads and are interested to learn more. And then some shocking learnings about other people who I thought were more progressive and informed um, than it turns out that they actually are and seeing their kind of shocked look 
on their face, you know, that I'm using the phrase or wondering if, you know, there is still a patriarchy. It's also reminded me that even though my mom did the work and educated me, the work doesn't end there and it probably never ends. Ashley and I are both moms and we talk about how we are going to educate and raise our kids. And so making this a part of our local and global conversations and awareness remains a work in progress and requires constant effort and unending commitment. So thanks for at least making this fun and accessible for more people. Mm. Oh, I hope it's fun. I love hearing the word fun. (laughs) A lot of these texts are so, they're so heavy too, right? And this was one of them that was really sometimes like hard to read. I had to kind of put it down and breathe for a minute. And, um, And so it is hard work. It's emotionally taxing, but it can, it can be fun too. And there's laughter mixed in there too. And um, so, yeah, thanks Manuela for that great response. Ashley, what about you? Um, Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I love the name so, so much. And I agree like Manuela, it's funny when you bring it up, um, when I've told people I was going to be on this podcast, um, they really want to know more. Some of them weren't even really familiar with the term patriarchy. I mean, it's um, it's not an antiquated term, but people just don't say it enough. They don't call a thing a thing enough. So um, I think it's a necessity for real progress for any nation to break the male-dominated strong stranglehold on every aspect of society. Um, I think that in general, dismantling the patriarchy will solve most of the world's ills, most of the problems we have on earth, um, environmental problems, um, discord between nations. It's all related to our male dominated society. Um, Malcolm X observed and always said that societies that uplift and educate women thrive in advance. And I think it's important that we talk about this. I believe the best reason to break down the patriarchy is because it will make the world a better place. I know that sounds so corny, but I really believe it. Mm -hmm. Um, True to form, we have to save the world and save men from themselves. And I think (laughs) that, you know, breaking down the patriarchy will also be saving men from themselves, from ultimate destruction, um, physically, emotionally, you know, um, And I love the idea of this podcast. I love so many of the episodes. I could say so many, but I love um, exploring feminism through literature. I think it provides the perfect platform for real conversations that can lead to real change. So I'm really happy to be here. Thank you, Amy. Oh, thank you. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay, well, let's dive in. And the first step will be to just introduce Bell Hooks. I'll do that quickly. We usually spend some time talking about the author, but uh, my friend Gina pointed out when we recorded our episode on a different book by Bell Hooks that we've already recorded the episode, but it'll it'll air later in the project. Um, that book is Feminism is for Everybody. And Gina pointed out that Bell Hooks wouldn't want a long biography. She's extremely modest. She's really unassuming. And in fact, she doesn't even capitalize her name. So if you ever see to listeners, if you see her name spelled, it's not a typo that her name isn't capitalized. She chooses it that way because she wants readers' attention to be on the substance of her ideas and not on her identity. 
And so I won't disrespect her wishes by talking too much about her, but I do have to share just a little bit because she's just the most magnificent human being. And I do want listeners to have some background as we discuss her work. And I highly recommend if you want just a, a quick read a little bit more about Bell Hooks. There's a um, an article in the New York Times about her by Min Jin Lee, which was published on February 28th, 2019. And it's called In Praise of Bell Hooks. So I recommend looking that up. But I'll share quickly that Bell Hooks is a pen name. She adopted her maternal great-grandmother's name because her great-grandmother was, quote, known for her snappy and bold tongue, which um, the granddaughter greatly admired. Bell Hooks' real name was Gloria Jean Watkins, and she was born on September 25th, 1952 in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, which is a small town that was segregated at the time. This was two years before Brown v. Board, of course, um, in 1952. So it was a segregated town, like legally segregated. Her father worked as a janitor and her mother worked as a maid in the homes of white families. And Gloria was educated in racially segregated public schools. And she later wrote that this is where she experienced education as the practice of freedom. She describes the great adversity she faced when making Making the transition to an integrated school where teachers and students were predominantly white. She was an avid reader all throughout her childhood, and after graduating from high school, she attended Stanford University, where she graduated with a degree in English in 1973. And as I mentioned um, at the very beginning, astoundingly, it was during her time as an undergrad at Stanford that she wrote Ain't I a Woman. I cannot even believe (laughs) that that's true. (laughs) Thinking about myself at 19 and now that I have, I have very smart daughters, but I mean, it's just an incredible intellectual feat. Um, Anyway, she got her MA in English from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1976. And then she spent several years teaching and writing and then completed her doctorate in literature from UC Santa Cruz and completed her dissertation on Toni Morrison. She's published more than 30 books, ranging in topics from black men, patriarchy and masculinity to self-help, personal memoirs and sexuality. And a prevalent theme in her most recent writing is community and communion. Um, And she's written three conventional books and four children's books where she suggests that communication and literacy are critical to developing healthy communities and relationships that are not marred by race, class, or gender inequalities. She has held positions as professor of African-American studies and English at Yale, associate professor of women's studies and American literature at Oberlin College, and distinguished lecturer of English literature at the City College of New York. She currently serves as a distinguished professor in residence in Appalachian Studies at Berea College in her home state of Kentucky. And before we start discussing Ain't I a Woman, when I'll kind of turn it over to you two, Manuela and Ashley, I, I do want to introduce her with three quotes from the book. One is on her writing style and two are on her motivation for writing the book. So really quickly, on writing style, and this is signature bell hooks. She says, quote, To reach a broader audience required the writing of work that was clear and concise, that could be read by readers who had never attended college or even finished high school, imagining my mother as my ideal audience, 
the reader I most wanted to convert to feminist thinking. I cultivated a way of writing that could be understood by readers from diverse class backgrounds. End quote. So I loved that. She wrote the book with her mom in mind the whole time, and she dedicated the book to her. And if you look at the cover of the book, there's this beautiful black and white photo, and that's Bell Hooks's mom on the cover. I just thought that was beautiful. Um, on her motivation to write this book, Bell Hooks says, quote, in classes and in consciousness raising groups, when I called attention to the differences created in our lives by race and racism, I was often treated with disdain by white female comrades who were eager to bond around shared notions of sisterhood. And there I was, this bold young black female from rural Kentucky, insisting that there were major differences shaping the experiences of black and white women. And then the last quote I want to share is, again, on another quote on her motivation for writing this book. She says, quote, as I encouraged black women to become active feminists, I was told that we should not become women's libbers because racism was the oppressive force in our life, not sexism. I wanted to provide concrete evidence to refute the arguments of anti-feminists who so loudly proclaimed that black women were not victims of sexist oppression and were not in need of liberation. End quote. So you have that that really clearly articulated intersectional vision, right, of wanting to point out the racism in our the structural racism in our society and also the structural sexism in our society. And, and that's really the thrust of this whole project. So with that intro, Ashley and Manuela, can you talk about some of the major themes that you found the most compelling in this work? And Ashley, I'd love it if you would start us off. Yeah, so um, I'm so excited to talk about this book. I think, you know, the quotes that you just shared really um, describe my experience of her writing style. She's so direct, so clear, so concise in every point that she makes um, that each one of them is it's just so hard to find quotes because everything is so quotable in each chapter. So um, we just kind of broke it down by chapter. I want to start with chapter one. It's called Sexism and the Black Female Experience. It starts sort of from um, when colonizers first came to Africa. Um, before, I don't know, it wasn't clear, but it seems like before the intent to enslave, there was observation. And um, I, I found it interesting where she started, but I was truly intrigued by how she explored the psychology of slavery and how much the first chapter is still relevant today, although it's about life of my ancestors hundreds of years ago. So this particular quote spoke to me, quote, white slaveholders were ambivalent in regards to their treatment of the black male. For while they exploited his masculinity, they institutionalized measures to keep that masculinity in check. Although it in no way diminishes the suffering and oppressions of enslaved black men, it's obvious that the two forces, sexism and racism, intensified and magnified the sufferings and oppressions of black women. This quote for me is the book. I mean, in a nutshell, what a way to start off. I mean, this quote to me describes why it's important to have intersectional feminism. Um, and it provoked a lot of questions for me, questions that I hadn't dared to ask myself, actually. Um, the first one being, why does the Black community seem more invested in alleviating 
and in general, black men suffering more than black women. And why is that always the dominant narrative? Okay. So like most of us, um, even what I learned about slavery was through movies, through some books, like I said, fiction mostly in the beginning, but historical fiction is mixed with factual accounts, I guess. Um, but they were all very male dominated stories. Um, and to this day, I mean, it's 2021 and the last few movies made about slavery, which by the way, I don't see them anymore, but I know that they are the, the male, the black male narrative is dominant when it's so clear reading this, but not only read it, just if you think in a common sense way, women have to be pregnant. Women that have been pregnant understand that it is one of the hardest things you can do to your body. I mean, I've worked out, I've run marathons, nothing is like pregnancy. The combination of the physical exertion, the pain, the emotional toll it takes on you, the idea of a woman experiencing that through chattel slavery is I, I can't even reconcile the the how arduous how how totally mind and body destroying that that could have been yet it's never addressed in you know popular movies popular culture period that produces these kinds of movies and books and even podcasts tv shows it is never addressed that black women clearly, I mean, if you never read anything, just you know about what happened during slavery and you know what women go through during pregnancy and you realize that women procreated during slavery, what, the idea that that has never been addressed says everything about how black women's experience has been diminished. And I, 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 I'm not sure why the black community is more invested other than it's just a reflection of the larger patriarchy that men are seeing more important. Men's narratives are more important. Um, I'm, I, I don't know why it's always the dominant narrative. I, I can't even think of a movie, even Harriet Tubman, which I watched a few minutes of it's about Harriet Tubman, but it was so male dominated. I mm -hmm. mean, it was almost like Harriet Tubman was a supporting actress in a movie about Harriet Tubman. And that's the reality of being a black woman. We are largely important to society, but our experience is ignored, diminished, um, narrated by someone else. I mean, it's the, 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 this, this, this line about how, Black masculinity has been preserved. I could say Black femininity was almost, they almost tried to destroy it. So, I mean, in all the ways that they promoted Black men during slavery and kept their masculinity um, as a sort of distorted mirror image of how white men were living. I, it's, it's interesting to me that not even racism could keep white men from making sure all women were suppressed by men. Mm. So um, I don't know. I, I thought to ask both of you, why do you think it's the dominant narrative? Is it, I mean, simply because they're male, they're more important. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, this, this, 
this left me with a lot of answers and then also like even more questions. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, but I was, I was shaken to my core by that line. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I agree that it's really, that there's not a clear answer and I, I can't wager why for the black community, that's what you've observed and I trust you other than maybe it's just too difficult and too horrible to face. Yeah. But you know, I think that most of these narratives, I call them black pain porn because that's how I see them. Um, You know, they will show a man strapped to the ground being beaten bloody um, but they can't show a woman having a baby in a slave field, in a cotton field. They can't show, you know, a woman nine months pregnant being worked within an inch of her life while she's carrying a child. They can't show, you know, women having their children ripped from them before they're properly weaned. I mean, these are this is perhaps the most important narrative of slavery because Women had male and female children. These were the mothers of this era. They had to do as much with what was going on with women as it did with men. Um, And so anyway, I I could talk about this one all day. I, I agree. Like, I feel like every quote could be its own thesis, its own book and essay, like literally. Um, So I'll move on. Um, The next quote that I wanted to talk about, um, quote, white colonizers sought to suppress sexuality because their deep fear of sexual feelings, their belief that such feelings were sinful and their fear of eternal damnation. Colonial white men placed the responsibility for sexual lust onto women and consequently regarded them with the same suspicion and distrust that they associated with sexual sexuality in general. I mean, this is it. Okay, so if the first one described the importance of intersexual feminism, this one gave me, this is the, the, the roots, the very roots of the patriarchy are through religion, through repressed sexual feelings, um, because most sexual repression gave rise to um, religious practices, if not necessarily the religion itself, but how they practice those religions. Um, And specifically Christianity, you know, Eve is seen as the mother of sin and she's this Pandora. She's obviously childlike and not very smart because she was talked into this thing, the one thing she wasn't supposed to do by an animal. Um, it, it just, I don't know. It, it made me start to think how has sexual repression through religion even affected us as black people? Because the first thing that was really given to us um, culturally was religion. I mean, it was in a, in an effort to oppress and suppress us like it had done for white women for, you know, centuries before that and after. Um, But I think that Black people have taken it and made this sexual repression and the sexism that arises from that, we've definitely made it our own. 
Um, this is not something that I feel that there is a different level of taboo about sexuality in the black church or that arises from the black church and pervades black culture. Um, and I understand that it's because the first, you know, the white European people that first settled here, they were like so fanatical about religion that they felt they needed to move and start a new religious land. Um, so um you know, I, I feel like now more than ever after reading this book um, that I really need to look more into the roots of religion and how they directly affect um, relationships between genders. And I, I thought this would be a great time to ask Manuela about how this manifests itself in Judaism, because I don't really know much. I know it seems woman centered, actually, because the religion can only come through the mother. Am I correct? But what do you think about this? Is it similar? So the religion comes through the mother. And my understanding of why that happened is because at some point in, you know, ancient history, the Romans attacked and raped all the women and killed all the, the Jewish men. And so the rabbis that survived said, okay, now it's going to pass through the women so that all the children that came from that rape became Jewish to continue their religion. Um, Amy and I have, have emailed and talked a little bit about Judaism and um, I feel very conflicted. Um, you know, it's the original Abrahamic religion and it started it planted the seeds for so much of what you were just describing, Ashley, uh, that idea um, of sin and, you know, that men are the more powerful, that, you know, they're the ones that can connect with God and have the right to practice the religion and to lead tribes and lead families. I think Judaism's saving grace is the focus on interpretation and allowing all Jewish people access to the texts and encouraging all Jewish people to ask questions about those texts. And so that opens up the possibility that we can reimagine how the religion can be interpreted and manifested and lived going forward. And so we don't have to assume and take for granted the way things have been done before. So I, I see hope in, uh, in Judaism in that way, but some of the most sexist experiences I've had, actually the only sexist experiences I've really had that I have observed and, and, and felt personally have been from Jewish men. And so there's definitely something that's happening there where, and this is just very personal, you know, uh, kind of uh, narrative, but it has felt that they didn't want me to be in a powerful position, to be smarter than them, to question them, to disagree with them, and that there was some need to reinforce my place in the hierarchy. Whereas men of other religions and backgrounds, um, I've found generally to be pretty open and accepting of, of my, you know, ambitions and interests. So 
yeah, I, I definitely struggle with Judaism in that regard, but I've decided that it can be my religion too, and they don't get to claim it for themselves alone. I love that. Well, thank you for that. Um, because I think about, I mean, you just said a lot, but I was thinking mostly about which part of this is cultural versus religion. And I guess there's like, you know, depending on how a religion has affected a culture, that line is blurred. And I think that's where we are now as black people. So much of our cultural traditions come out of religion because it's basically the only thing we were allowed to independently do by people that enslaved us. So, so much of the culture is tied to religion um, that now those lines are blurred so that people that aren't necessarily like church going or, you know, particularly dogmatic still have these, you know, Judeo-Christian ideals about a woman's morality and sexuality and, you know, who owns that and who gives what to whom. So I don't know. Um, interesting though, um, that I think it may just be a man thing, but <laughs> I'll go to the next quote. Enslaved black men were stripped of their patriarchal status that had characterized their social situation in Africa, but they were not stripped of their masculinity. Despite all popular arguments that claim black men were figuratively castrated throughout the history of slavery in America, black men were allowed to maintain some semblance of their societal, societally defined masculine role. In colonial times, as in contemporary times, masculinity denoted possessing the attributes of strength, virality, vigor, and physical prowess. It was precisely the masculinity of the African male that the white slaver sought to exploit. I mean, this, you know, immediately I thought about women because that's how my mind worked. I thought that it was interesting that as Black women, we were forced into this European definition of femininity, and then it was made impossible to truly attain. It seems like maybe one of the cruelest ways to program people mentally, to give them a, a, a you know, a status um, that they can never escape, you know? So there was a caste system within a caste system in um, American chattel slavery because Everything was for the sake they, they understood that they needed the men's labor the most. They needed everybody's labor, but they needed men's labor the most. And so they understood that masculinity requires someone to lord over, that masculinity is almost defined in this text as your relationship to another gender. Um, so black women had to become, as Manuela and I call it, the dirt in which everything else was on top of the mud, the mud sill. sill, the <laughs> mud sill. We love that term, but um, cause it's so descriptive. Um, mud sill is the lowest layer of dirt. Like it's like, if you think of your skin, it's the, the dermis underneath the epidermis. It's the layer underneath the dirt everyone sees. And that is what black women had to become in order for them to not break black men's e emotional, um, quotient of masculinity completely. They needed them broken enough to not uprise, but still feeling manly enough to go and perform physical tasks. So, um, and those, wanna, those physical tasks are where the slavers got the value, right? Completely. So it, 
the the black man's value reinforced maleness. But yes, the black man's value reinforced maleness. But once again, you know, there was lots of tremendous value in just the fact that black women were able to produce more people to enslave. And the fact that that probably produced more value, right? Because you get one female who is enslaved, she can make you six more enslaved people. A man can only do the work. A woman does the work. And so so logic would state you would want to make this person more comfortable, but nothing about the patriarchy is logical. Nothing about sexism or really any ism is logical because you would think that actually the person that you wanted to protect the gender role or the gender that you wanted to protect would be the woman if you were actually interested in the money. But it wasn't just about the money. It was also about defining the patriarchy at every level, even a subcultural slave community that you have no real, you know, interest in other than controlling them for the purpose of working them. So um, I wanted to ask Manuela about how European definitions of femininity affect her as a white woman. Yeah, it's um, it's a complicated topic. And, you know, you and I have talked um, a lot about that. Um, something that I experienced um, just being when I was younger growing up is once we moved from Brazil to where a lot of people have curly hair and it's really appreciated and um, people comment and compliment you for curly hair um, in the United States, I felt like I had to straighten out my hair. Um, and so you see photos of me when I'm seven and my hair is just like this, like frizzy straight down, like straw, like, I don't know, triangle on my head where I just remember like vigorously, like brushing my hair, trying to get it straight. Um, and my mom didn't teach me anything about, she has curly hair too. She didn't know anything about straightening her hair and she never wanted to straighten her own hair and she loved my curly hair. So she didn't want to teach me how to straighten my own hair. And so for years I just had this like straw, pyramid on my head you know that I was brushing out always trying to get it straight and always wondering like oh how do I get straight hair and just wanted that so badly and it it's really only in the last like five ten years that I'm enjoying my curly hair and wear it really happily and confidently so that's a big one um I you know I'm a white woman so I did pass according to a lot of the other ideals that um, I think white women and of people, pe women of European descent are expected to meet. Um, so the, those didn't feel as like burdensome or that I was swimming upstream as much, but something that um, Ashley and I have talked about in the past is I, I was lucky enough, fortunate enough to go to really diverse and integrated public schools growing up always my middle school and my high school were 50% white 50% black essentially and that was really beneficial and maybe is why I never had like eating disorders or anything like that where I think other white women have challenged have faced that challenge a lot because I was exposed to so many body types and different ideals of beauty you know, that I 
never felt that I would look in the mirror and say, well, you're not skinny enough. You're not skinny enough. And being skinny is good. And that's the goal that you should have because there were all types of, of physical um, beauties, um, you know, demonstrated in my school. Um, so I think I'm fortunate from that. I was protected against some of those ideals because of the integrated environment that I grew up in. But I don't know. What do you think? And do you feel that you've held yourself to European ideals? No, not at all. And, you know, it's funny. I was as I was reading this, I thought to myself, it's actually kind of a good thing that they made this definition of femininity and made it impossible for us to reach. Because what happened was we completely rejected it at some point and said, you know what? And actually, that some point was the 70s. And Black women started embracing their natural hair texture at that point, their butts and, you know, their bodies being shaped differently and their body mass being distributed in different ways. I mean, that's when the song Brick House came out and shaped like a Coke bottle and your natural hair and then the natural hair care industry that sprung up around it that provided lots of Black people jobs and created Black wealth. I mean, I actually think that the rejection or rather the perceived rejection by mainstream society was needed and necessary in order to make us create our own new beauty standards. Because as you, as you two know, a lot of people don't, but African, like from Africa, beauty standards are very different than African-American beauty standards. And it's reflective of you know, all of the different cultures from Africa that came here, the different tribes, the different, you know, ethnic groups that were all mixed up here and what we've created since we've been here. So I think it's a great thing because it's actually, I mean, and now in 2021, it's so different from when I grew up even. Um, everyone is wearing their hair natural who is black now. It's encouraged white women, I think, more so to be more natural and embrace curly textures. And there's this whole industry of hair care products and bloggers and, you know, social media um, influencers that sprung up around there. So you have this economy and then you also have, you know, our, re our rejection of something that rejected us. Um, now we create beauty trends. We create beauty standards. You know, black women are the, the most, um, prolific pop culture influencers that there are. Um, I've seen a shirt that says um, um, white gay men copying black gay men copying black women, like the foundation <laughs> of uh, your favorite pop culture um, phenomenons, the, the dances, the, you know, everything we were told was very, um, was not feminine based on European standards. Now we embrace it. Now we, we dance how we want to dance. We wear our hair how we want to wear it. We have beauty and skincare products that cater specifically to us. So I think it was necessary to get to the point that we're at now. Um, and But the intent um, was to suppress us. Um, but as, you, as, as men throughout history have found, there's a breaking point. You can only suppress so far to where you get backlash, you get an outcry, you get a revolution. So that's, you know, what happened. Okay, last quote for this chapter I wrote, or Bell wrote, 
Um, the brutal cheap treatment of enslaved black women by white men exposed the depths of male hatred on the woman and a woman's body. Such treatment was a direct consequence of misogynist attitudes toward women that prevailed in colonial American society. In fundamentalist Christian teaching, woman was portrayed as an evil sexual temptress, the bringer of sin into the world. Sexual lust originated with her and men were merely the victims of her wanton power. I'll stop there. Um, so this one was, you know, I always think about religion and religious dogma and how that, um, is conflated with misogyny in a way that like, we just cannot escape and we will always have to address. Um, so I thought something like, how can something as deeply rooted as misogyny with origins in religious dogma ever truly change? Like, if this is truly the origin of misogyny, um, you know, something that has been ingrained in our society, in all cultures across the world because of colonialization, you know, if, if misogyny is so entrenched in organized religion, how can we ever make, make that different? I don't know. Um, that's kind of a question. So if anyone wants to chime in, you guys have the answers. Yeah, I can take this one because I, I would say that that very question, Ashley, has been the guiding question and kind of the personal engine that's been really propelling me in this whole project because of my experience in my faith tradition. And I agree with you, Ashley, whether or not a person is religious, we all have to confront this religious history because those religious stories form the foundation upon which society has constructed its systems. And then through colonization, they spread almost everywhere. And so, like you said, like you bring up with this quote, that's why Bell Hooks is writing about it because it impacted everybody, these, you know, the Judeo-Christian stories. And so what one thing I think of is that Gerda Lerner points out, you know, at the very beginning of the podcast project, we did the creation of patriarchy. And this was a real game changer for me um, when I read in that book that she points out that men were the makers of the myths and the symbol systems. And so it was men who were making up these stories that eventually, you know, were recorded in scripture. But initially they were just passing along those stories. And somehow along the way, people came to accept that those stories had come from God. And then there was a group of men that had the audacity. And I say audacity, even, even if it was well-meaning and sincerely felt, it still takes a lot of confidence and kind of like presumptiveness to take those stories and make rules for people about what they could and couldn't do and how they could and couldn't see themselves based on these stories that had been made up. And so, I mean, when I learned in grad school that those stories had been written down a lot later than I had thought they were after thousands of years of oral tradition, I at first really grieved a lot because those stories had been sacred to me and I thought they'd come directly from God. And so that was a huge blow to my faith. But then as I kind of deconstructed things and then have been trying to, to reconstruct something new, I really turned to that example that you just talked about, Manuela, within Judaism, with that tradition of questioning the sacred text and 
wrestling with the text and wrestling with God and reinterpreting the meaning. And I actually have to point out that so many authors on our reading list have been Jewish women. I've talked about this on other episodes when it like dawned on me like, whoa, this disproportionate number of Jewish authors in women's studies. Um, And I have to just assume that like you said, Manuela, Jewish people have this tradition of being willing or even encouraged actually, like encouraged to depart from a literalist reading of a text and really being encouraged to think of the stories in new ways and reinterpret, um, especially in, you know, more modern and reform forms of Judaism, not Orthodox so much. But um, but yeah, we, I mean, women theologians have done this within all different religions. We talked about in in our episode on the creation of feminist consciousness, also by Gerda Lerner. And, and I actually just read a couple more books of feminist theologians for an episode that's going to be coming out in a few weeks called um, Woman Spirit Rising. And it's, it was just awesome. So many women theologians of different faiths taking lots of different approaches to this, some of them digging back into the past and, and really reclaiming some ancient traditions of the divine feminine that are like within Judaism, within Christianity, but didn't make it into the official canon. And so kind of excavating the divine feminine from the, you know, the ancient tradition. And then some feminist theologians um, just reinterpreting the existing text, but in a way that places women as central, and then some women just making up something entirely new, new stories, new rituals, new ways of connecting to the divine, um, but that include women and that honor our own lived experience. And I think that can feel really uncomfortable for women, especially women like me who really our whole lives were trained to view religious authority as strictly male or the scriptures as like the defining text that we're not supposed to question. So I I do think it's a really powerful act of audacity and maybe appropriate audacity, you know, on the part of women to say, I have the authority to reinterpret this scripture, like Sarah Grimke did. Actually, it's reminding me of Sarah Grimke. Or to say, you know, I have the authority, I have the audacity to reinterpret or reintroduce, you know, this ancient divine feminine symbol or to make up something new. And I think when we remember that other humans have done that, that's what men have always like given themselves permission to do, given themselves the authority. And we say, you know what, other humans have done that. That's what I'm doing. Then I think that's how we can move forward and people of faith can still retain faith, but in a way that feels more authentic and again, inclusive of women and more true to who we are as women. I love that. I hope that's true, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can make it be true, right? I mean, that's the only option, right? We can just say, yeah, it's true. (laughs) <laughs> and then like people can accept that answer or not, I guess, but it can be true You're right. for us. We have to manifest our own truths. Um, that's true. Um, so I just thought about reading this too. Um, and Amy and I have talked about this separately, how religion is actually what united black people around civil rights. And religion is so entrenched in our freedom in this country that Black people can't see it as anything but positive. But when you look at some of the individual stories during civil rights, how women were suppressed and didn't really have 
like, um, you know, they couldn't be leaders and have voices and speak at certain events. And, you know, it was just very indicative of what the black church has been giving for centuries. And um, I just don't think that I, I am a part of a Baptist church and I love my church and I consider us one of the more progressive churches, but in general, Christianity and Christ, uh, denominations that have their roots in Christianity, the way that they were structured was just like society. And women have been suppressed. Women are seen as, you know, evil and the mothers of sin. And we just, we got to really cut that out. I'm glad she specifically addressed where it all comes from, but there's a lot of things about white society that we as black people are beginning to reject I'm sad to say that sexism isn't one of those things. The, the patriarchy is embraced by the people who it empowers. And in some ways, in many ways, it does empower black men, particularly in the black community. So um, I just wanted to mention really quickly to this term misogynoir, um, because that is the term that it's misogyny directed towards black women where race and gender both play roles in the bias. The term was coined by a queer black feminist named Moya Bailey. She's very interesting. She is amazing writing. Um, and she termed, she coined this term to address misogyny directed toward black women in American visual and popular culture. The thing that makes me sad about this term is that it's a necessary term. Um, that, that, it is a term, I think, that is directed completely at white feminists to because the term intersectional feminism hasn't garnered enough attention or respect um, for what black women go through specifically. I think this term was coined so that people can't say we're just experiencing misogyny. It's a level deeper when you're a black woman. There is a double jeopardy, a double um, a double edged sword there of misogyny and racism, and we're on the ends of both. Chapter two, continued devaluation of black womanhood. I'm just gonna share like the quote of this. The success of sexist racist conditioning of American people toward black women as creatures of little worth or value is evident when politically conscious white feminists minimize sexist oppression of black women. As Brown Miller does, she's referring to an earlier quote. Um, this stereotype still pervades society today that black women are sexual savages, um, non-human. Um, and this was all necessary because in slavery, a slave couldn't be raped. There was no real, all of the crimes you could commit against a white person. It wasn't considered a crime against black people. And it was, and, and so then it was necessary, certainly in their colonial Judeo-Christian minds, to make us less than human in order to inflict certain things upon us. However, the stereotype has a life of its own now, that Black women are not victims of sexist oppression, that um, Black women, you know, have less worth or less value than pretty much you know, every other traditional member of sexist society. So if you put, if you ranked white men, then white women, then black men, then black women, like we're on the lowest rung of the totem pole in terms of value and worth 
or how that is expressed in society, our society. Um, and I thought about this specifically because, um, oh, sorry, let me share the last line of this quote because I think I skipped that. White women and men justified the sexual exploitation of enslaved black women by arguing that they were the initiators of sexual relationships with men. From such thinking emerged the stereotype of black women as sexual savages and in sexist terms, a sexual savage is a non-human and an animal that cannot be raped. Okay. So I thought about this in terms of how we were taught about Sally Hemmings and Thomas Jefferson. In school, they taught this like this was some love story for the ages. Like I'm reading Withering Heights. Like it was giving very much. Um, this is an adjacent story to like, um, you know, uh, uh, Gone with the Wind. Like they're just giving it like it's like some love story. Well, as a grown woman, I found out that Sally Hemmings was 13 when Thomas Jefferson started to rape her, that she was the wife of his, I mean, the sister of his dead wife, um, that his wife came to their plantation Monticello with because um, it was very common for, you know, slave masters to father children and then have them be housemaids to their legitimate children. Um, and I was thinking about all the the notions of rape and consent and adulteration of black women, which is really a problem. And it all stems from this necessary notion so that white men felt okay about raping women um, and white women could also feel okay with it was this notion that black women somehow wanted it. Somehow these enslaved black women wanted this sexual interaction, no matter how young they were, no matter how resistant, somehow just by virtue of their blackness, they were sexual savages who could not technically be raped. Um, I thought so much about, you know, men are men, men are going to rape and pillage and kill. And I truly believe that, you know, I watch too many Viking shows, but I truly believe that a man's base nature is to do that. I think that what really troubled me about this was white women's active participation in these stereotypes simply to justify the lives they were living. Um, that there was never any thought that, you know, rape is not okay on anyone. And she said something interesting in another portion that I won't go into, but she essentially said that this man observed white women looking down at black women being beaten and, you know, that they must be thinking if we try to stop this, it could be us next. And because for a long period of history, it was, you know, the rapes and, and physical, um, you know, punishment and domestic violence was very commonplace. I mean, it wasn't until like the 90s that they made actual laws about domestic violence that, you know, um, that, that if police came to your house, they had to take your husband if you or partner, if you had like signs of abuse, because it used to be that a woman could just say, no, you know, don't put him in jail. And it was fine. So um, I just thought about this, like how an oppressed group can be an active participant in oppression because they're just sort of like, just not us. Like, mm -hmm. if you have to do this to someone, just don't do it to me. Um, and I'm wondering what you guys think about how that has affected how black and white women interact to this day, um, because these stereotypes are still prevalent about black women being over sexualized. Um, black women and a, and a white woman can do the same dance, but a black woman is seen as inappropriate and over-sexual. 
Um, so I don't know, like, do white women still benefit from this juxtaposition? Is that something you can comment on? It's I, I have a ton of thoughts going through my head as as you're talking. Um, and some of it has to do with what you said earlier about the fact that isms are not logical. And I'm a really, really logical person to a fault, like to a, being naive about things. So I, um, I, I recognize that what I'm going to say maybe isn't like broadly applicable to society or to white women. But the example you just gave from the book about, you know, white women looking down and seeing black women being beaten and thinking to themselves, oh, my God, I could just I could drop down to that level, to that mud sill, you know, and so let me at least I'm not at the top, but I'm not at the bottom. So I'm at least going to, you know, maintain the status quo because this isn't that bad. And I look at that situation and I would think to myself, oh, my God, A, that's terrible what's happening down there. But B, it could happen to me. And the only way to make sure that it can happen is to break down that hierarchy. The only way that I'm ever going to be certain that I'm not then in that position from a totally selfish perspective is to make sure that it's not a white man or whatever other man above me. So I have always seen those kinds of inequalities and the idea of the mudsill, like I get it in society and we've talked about it and it's helped me understand how things function. But if you're not at the top, it's always possible that you're going to go to the bottom. And so it seems to me that every minority or every group that is discriminated against should be banding together and helping each other out. And I know that that's not like a satisfying answer for what is probably a more common other mentality, but that's how I approach things. So I am a feminist and I, uh, you know, help people of color and, I help immigrants and I try to be as thoughtful as I can about how I can help others who are worse off because if, if they can't be helped, you know, then I could end up in that same situation. And they say that about Jews during the Holocaust, right? Like they first came for the Catholics and I didn't speak up and they came for the Poles and I, they didn't speak up. They came for the homosexuals and I didn't speak up. And then they came for me and there was no one there to speak up for me. So for me, that's like very much influenced how I, live my life. But I also think I, I just have a really high degree of naivete. As you were talking, you know, I think about middle school and high school, and I never personally thought of black women in the way that Bell Hooks describes it as, you know, over-sexualized and sexual savages. Like, that's not what my mind ever uh, led to or concluded. But I think back like in middle school that there were situations where people did talk about black girls at that time, you know, 12 year olds, 13 year olds in that way. And I wasn't aware enough of what you're talking about, these patterns in society and how people bucket certain populations. I wasn't aware enough to speak up. So I think in that case, I, I didn't speak up for somebody else, you know, because I, I really wasn't aware of that 
uh, stereotype that's been perpetrated, perpetuated throughout our country. Yeah, both. So I'm not, I'm not innocent either, even if I wasn't aware. And I think that's like a big, that's been a big learning for me in the last one to two years, you know, with Black Lives Matter is like innocence is no excuse. uh, Ignorance, excuse me, is no excuse, you know, and it is incumbent on me to be better informed about these things, you know, which is part of why I'm reading this book. And, and, you know, we have these conversations. So I'm thankful to you and other black women for helping me become more aware. Um, So definitely, I think that was happening. And like, as I think through my upbringing and my childhood and adolescence, I I'm like, wow, okay, actually, that that was happening. Maybe I didn't explicitly actively participate, but it was around me. And I didn't identify and I didn't um, speak up to fight it. You know, it's not um, what you said is not uncommon. I mean, bell hooks is, is so cogent, so knowledgeable. I mean, beyond her years, I, the fact that she wrote this at 19 still escapes me. I mean, I was living off daiquiris and white (laughs) wine and like eating Skittles for dinner at night. I was just like, but I, wasn't until recently that I even had the words to articulate how I felt about intersectional feminism. And I don't think I even understood until I was much more of an adult, how it affected my everyday life. So it's not uncommon to just, you, you can have a feeling, but not knowing how to address something or articulate something. It's just very it's like a journey. Like you find your voice in something, you find out how you even want to speak on something, um, how you can participate, how you can be the most helpful. Like, I think that's an evolving journey. And I think people shouldn't, you know, Manuela, you're very hard on yourself about this. Actually, I can make a personal note here. Um, Manuela is very smart. She's very um, empathic as well in a way that I don't meet many people who are. And very uh, thirsty for more knowledge. And so it's in that vein that she always feels like she should know more about something. There's just things you can't know until you know them, Manuela. And a Black woman's experience, particularly a child who couldn't even articulate to you how she was feeling, like there's no way you could have known until you know. Um, Lucky you met me. (laughs) it's true i I did also want to um just going back to something you had um raised earlier ashley um is reference um i think like a, a funny example is like with dance um so in my middle school and high school like I, I got to in gym class dance with the black girls and learn how to you know do their dances and it was, that was awesome experience and i think you know you see this throughout American pop culture. It's like when it's a, a black community dancing, it's, you know, it's perceived as less than and looked down upon. But as soon as it's a white body doing that same move, then it's seen as cutting edge and risque, you know? And so I, I think maybe that's one of the ways that it came out in my middle school and high school, because there was a lot of dance culture where I grew up. And, and I, I, I probably been in that way. I probably benefited, you know, as a, as a white woman talking about 
earlier, you know, ideas of like, you know, European beauty and European standards. I think that I benefited because you as a white woman, you can kind of dabble in both. Right. And this Mm -hmm. gets into like cultural appropriation and appropriation of beauty standards. Right. That I I can get cornrows and it's like cute and cool, you know, and edgy or whatever. Um, And I can wear my hair straight or curly, you know, and that it's it's seen as positive no matter how I do it. Yeah, as a beauty trend and not ghettoized in any way or looked at as inferior. I mean, when you're not a dominant culture in this country, um, many things are taken from you. But I think what they tried to take and then unsuccessfully so most from us was um, our cultural self-esteem and particularly that of the Black woman, because part of your cultural self-esteem is about what a person in your gender, in your culture looks like, is like what the standard of beauty there is. And I think that more than anyone else, um, standards of beauty were more enforced upon us, um, you know, uh, because white women's standard of beauty was the standard. Um And like you said, Manuela, even some white women can't meet the blonde hair, straight, blonde hair, blue eyed aesthetic, but we're the furthest away from it. (laughs) So it's most impactful on our on our self-esteem, I think, as women. Okay, moving right along. I wasn't going to share another um, quote from this, but I have to share this one. And it's particularly because I have a great anecdote for it. Okay, so. This one, this quote says they perpetuated the myth that all black men were eager to rape white women so that white females would not seek friendships with black men for fear of brutal assault. The horrific nature of violent attacks on black manhood has caused historiographers and sociologists to assume that whites feared unions between white women and black men most. In actuality, they feared legally sanctioned racial mixing on the part of the sexes of either group. Black men were more likely to seek legal sanction through marriage of their relationships with white women. They received the brunt of attacks by white supremacists. By brainwashing white women to see black men as savage beasts, white supremacists were able to implant enough fear in white female psyche so that she would avoid any contact with black men. Okay, I'm about to say something so controversial that everybody's going to hate. Well, everybody black is going to hate. I have a friend named Ryan. His mother... Um, Miss Donna, shout out to Mama Donna. Hi, Mama Donna. I know she's going to listen to this. She always told me that part of the reason that Black men were so fervent about civil rights is because they wanted access to white women sexually and to be able to marry them. And I always thought, oh, no, that can't be true. You know, why would she say that? This goes against everything I saw in Eyes on the Prize and was taught in Sunday school. Like, why? But the more that I read, and particularly this book, but when you read All Feminists, I mean, this was a big part of it. It's not popular to say, but these white men who thought that Black men wanted to marry white women, they weren't wrong. I mean, the fact that they saw it as a threat to whiteness and You know, that's bad, but they weren't wrong. But I think they created their own monster in a way. Whenever you make something so taboo, something so untouchable, everyone wants to touch it. 
Everyone wants to, you know, be a part of it. So by holding white women on this pedestal to effectively, you know, control and placate white women, but also have a reason to brutalize black men, but and also give these impossible standards to black women. So there was a reason behind it, the social control of this subculture of slaves. However, it made black men desire white women that much more. I mean, it's no reason to be able to brutalize a black man. I think it's terrible, you know, but I think that there is something to be said about the fact that these white men were right. If you normalize interracial dating, black men are more likely, and you see that in the numbers and everything, black men are more likely to marry outside their race than black women. I mean, that has a lot to do with uh, sexism in the black community and ownership of women and all this other stuff I won't go into, but I wanted to say that because I don't think anyone says that. And I think it's true. Chapter three, the imperialism of patriarchy. Um, I'm just going to share one brilliant quote from this um, because the whole chapter is so like, I think you could teach a course on each sentence of the chapter, but I'll just share this. When the contemporary movement toward feminism began, there was little discussion of the impact of sexism on the social status of black women. The upper and middle class white women who were at the forefront of the movement made no effort to emphasize that patriarchal power, the power men use to dominate women, is not just the privilege of upper and middle class white men, but the privilege of all men in our society, regardless of class and race. White feminists so focused on the disparity between white male, white female economic status as an indication of the negative impact of sexism, that they drew no attention to the fact that poor and lower class men are able to oppress and brutalize women as any other group of men in American society. So I love this quote because this is still the case today, but I don't understand why. We have so much understanding of how, you know, the impact on your life of, you know, the layered effects of gender, race, class, socioeconomic status, how it impacts people. We have all this data, we have studies, we have everything. But this is still like nothing has changed. I mean, middle class and upper class white women are still leading most of the feminist narratives and the feminist movements, as it were. And in general, like black women's issues have never really been incorporated in a real way by mainstream white feminists. And I'm wondering, do white women actually know all of this and just not care? Do they think by solving their own issues, the issues of all women will be solved? Like, I don't know where the thinking is. So I'm going to turn this over to you two, because I was just left with all questions on this. I'm, my only commentary is, how is this still the same? And, and what is the thinking here? I uh, don't know why it's the same and i don't know what um white middle and upper class women uh, i don't know what the right answer is but yes 100 percent, i agree when you look at uh you know i'm in the entrepreneurship and tech space and when you hear stories um and have people talk about successes of women and then writ large that's expanded to represent like all diversity and inclusion, it's always white women. And it's always white women who come from, you know, well-to-do backgrounds. And a lot of times it's Jewish women also. 
uh, you know, and that's something that um, I definitely struggle with and, you know, uh, intend to fight against and make sure that I am bringing people up with me as much as possible. But uh, yeah, Ashley, absolutely. The other thing I, I'm noticing is um, when there are um, outspoken, you know, leaders, quote unquote, um, in women's groups, around diversity and inclusion, it's women who are white passing. So you'll have Latinas who are, and you know, in Latin America, there's the same kind of diversity dynamic that we have in the United States. There was immigration, there was slavery and colonization and native indigenous people. Like people think that you can't be white if you're from Latin America. So it's white Latinas who are leading the charge for, you know, the Latinx movement. And when you see, and you can comment on this, probably we've talked about like colorism. It seems that if it's a woman, a black woman who is taking the charge for, you know, black feminism, oftentimes she's lighter skinned and, you know, she has those, more white colonial features. Um, So I don't know who's at fault and what's to blame. I think media is a big part of that. Like it's, you just have editors who maybe are more comfortable, uh, oftentimes are white men themselves, more comfortable like saying, well, like this is, we can't go too far outside of our comfort zone and our readers won't be able to grapple with this. I mean, I was a journalist at first. I worked at Newsweek out of China and that's how it worked. It was white managing editors in New York and we would send them ideas from Beijing where I was reporting and they'd say, no, that's not, that's not the story. That's not what's happening. And it was an, you know, it was an uphill battle. So, you know, I think it's, it's systemic and there's not one uh, place where we can point our fingers, but I think, It's media, as I mentioned. I think it's women saying, like, this is mine. And this is like, a you know, I call it sorority feminism. Like, it's time for me to get mine. You know, like, I got hazed. And so those other women have to be hazed. And now this is my chance to, like, make it in the world. You know, I'm going to get what I deserve. And it's just me, me, me. And so I think it's also a lot of women who are like, I'm going to ride this you know, feminism thing or entrepreneurship thing. And I'm going to make it big for myself. And I'm going to use every tool and technique available to me to, to get attention and to build my platform instead of taking the time to be like, wait a second, uh, who else deserves the attention and the spotlight? Um, so I know that doesn't like solve the problem or directly answer your question. It, it's only to reinforce what what you're pointing out um, and observing. But I think that there are women and there's a group of minority people, like my intern, Jessica, who is Mexican-American. We talk about this all the time. And we talk about bringing other people along with us and making sure that you're always looking at who else needs that that hand helping hand. And it's, it's like, so American, you know, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like BS, most people, you know, pull the ladder up after themselves. So I think that that's just a, a very like American kind of cultural and business tendency as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was more interested in the idea that now with, you know, endless amounts of social media and, you know, internet, now everyone knows, everyone knows the problem. Everyone knows, everyone who's interested in any type of feminist thought, let's say that. 
So people that understand what the patriarchy is and how it affects your life, I think those white women know. So it leads me to either they don't care enough to be inclusive or they don't think inclusion helps them, which is why what you were kind of saying. Um, how does how does this help me to help black women or how does this help me to include them in my struggle in any way? Girl, I can talk. It goes back to the example you just talked you talked about earlier, which is like white women on the balcony looking down on black women getting beaten and being like, well, look, I'm just focusing on like making sure that that's not me. And how do I get up closer to where the, you know, powerful white men are? And like, I'm just going to focus on that problem and I'm helping the world by focusing on that bit of a problem. You know, and I, I, in some, like some people, that's a strategy, right? It's like, I just got to take care of this inequality that I face and I can't solve other people's inequality. And so but see, that's the, that's the worst part about this actually, is that white women don't understand the power that they truly have, because like you were saying about, you know, ways white men can suppress. I find that when you go to companies, HR who's responsible for like onboarding people, initial, you know, contact with them, um, even recruiting them in some cases, they're mostly white women, HR people, um, you know, by the, the virtue of the benefit of affirmative action, white women are very present and empowered in corporate spaces because affirmative action actually just brought a bunch of white women into the corporate world. Um, they're the people that have benefited the most from that. So they're there and they have power. Maybe not as much power as white men, but definitely power. So who are they empowering with that power? And do they do they they do know now that they have it, but are they going to use it just to help other white women? Because at at the end of the day, you're going to help some women Um, and it doesn't change your power dynamic at all. You know who that woman is, if she's black, if she's white, if she's Mexican. But why would you who would you choose and why? Who would you choose to empower and why would you choose to empower a community that's racially different from you? But, you know, we all share the same gender. It's an interesting question and one not easily answered. I just thought I would put it out there. Thank you. That was a great, tough conversation and uh, lots more to think about and learn. Actually, continuing on from the point you were making a minute ago, um, I, I looked it up. To I, I had looked it up before, but I wanted to reference here because it is so important to repeat what you said that, um, and this is in quotes, not from Bell Hooks, but from Columbia University law professor Kimberly Crenshaw for the University of Michigan Law Review in 2006, quote, the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action have been Euro-American women. And there's a whole journal article outlining that, including data. So A, that was an important lesson I learned while I was um, in grad school and a black woman highlighted that to me. So I learned only a few years ago. Um, And it means then that I have likely benefited from affirmative action. You know, and here I am thinking, oh, I did it all myself. Aren't I great? And, you know, I get all the credit for everything I've done. Um, And so relating to your point um, around, you know, uh, feminism and how it's been really focused on white women, um, you know, something that was really kind of sad to me was 
learning that the heroes that we, at least as white women, were raised by popular American culture to admire and emulate were in fact deeply flawed. And Bell Hooks writes, quote, discrimination against Afro-American women reformers was the rule rather than the exception within the women's rights movement from the 1830s to 1920. Although white feminists, Susan B. Anthony, Lucy Stone, and some others encouraged black women to join the struggle against sexism during the 19th century, Antebellum reformers who were involved with women's abolitionist groups, as well as women's rights organizations, actively discriminated against black women. And for me, that just raises a lot more tough questions. You know, who are these who are the heroes that we can turn to? Who are the the figures in history that that we can hold up and. It does also, of course, raise a lot of um, doubt and questions around the American dream. And that's something that, um, you know, Bell Hooks talks a lot about in Chapter 4. Um, and as, as you said, Ashley, just every sentence is so hard hitting um, and, yeah, deserves its own conversation and yet is also so interwoven to everything else that she she talks about. And um, I was looking for some solutions and, you know, steps to take going forward. Um, and Ashley, you talked about this a little bit earlier uh, in your intro um, about how a sisterhood that is necessary for revolution. And she writes, sisterhood cannot be forged by the mere saying of words. It is the outcome of continued growth and change. It is a goal to be reached a process of becoming. The process begins with action, with the individual woman's refusal to accept any set of myths, stereotypes, and false assumptions that deny the shared commonness of her human experience. And so for Ashley, I'm curious, how can, how would you invite women, non-Black women, to engage in this discourse and in this fight for improving the situation for all women. I think you're on mute, Ashley. We're losing you. Yeah. I've thought about this a great deal because this is something white girls always ask me when this conversation comes up. White women are always like, well, what do we do? I know. Okay. It's I not didn't an easy want answer. to ask you, but but I think it's a relevant question and I think it needs to be asked because if I'm putting something out there that is a problem, it's reasonable to ask me, well, how do we solve it? Okay. I'm not, there's a school of thought for black people that white people created racism and in some ways white feminists introduced racism into this sisterhood. So they should solve it. Maybe not because they haven't solved it yet. So maybe they don't know how to. Okay. So I'm going to say this. I think that asserting the fact that black women should have equity in all your spaces is where you can start. So if you go into a place and you're like, oh, this is diverse because I see white women count how many black women you see. I'm only going to speak on black women because I'm a black woman, but know that you can extend this to other races of women. I just think it's more acutely important for black women. Okay. So, and because we're reading bell hooks. Um, so I think that it's important 
to impress upon the men in your life, you know, that have, you know, work at corporations, they're in a C-suite. Ask them, how many black people are on the board? How many are black women? It starts with questions, questions that provoke thought and hard questions. I mean, nobody wants to necessarily talk about, you know, how their husband is or isn't asserting that his company should be diverse or not at the dinner table. It's not an easy, you know, starter, dinner conversation starter. But these are conversations that need to be had. And then you have to start to ask yourself, if you can't even talk about it, how can it ever change? So that's where I think we should start with having real dialogue, real conversations with people who can create change. Very quickly, I will share that I really love that, um, not this was male, male, but I will still say Serena Williams' husband, Alex Ohanian, he gave up his seat on his own board of his corporation and told them they had to replace him with somebody black. Hmm. That is literally giving up your white privilege and saying, I am giving up this part of my privilege so that this person can have equity. I think if white women can find a way to do that with black women in whatever way they can, talking, action, I think it's important. I think that's how you start. Yeah, Ashley, I figured I could ask you because I thought you would have a great answer. And uh, you did. And it's really helpful, really helpful to think about that. And it's something that anyone and everyone can do. You know, it's not a Herculean Martin Luther King Jr. level obstacle. No, it's accessible and it's practical and it's important. If you can't talk about something, you can never change it. If something makes you so uncomfortable that you can't really wade into that space, nothing is ever going to change in that space. So we have to keep having these conversations and then have action behind them, connected to them. Yeah. So this last chapter, um, chapter five, Black Women and Feminism, um, Again, so many important quotes. Um, I think for me, what was most impressive, what most impressed me and pressed my in my mind, was learning more about Sojourner Truth, and um, you know, just wanting to draw a little bit of attention uh, to what she had to overcome, and and how incredible she seems to have been. So Hooks writes of the second annual convention of the women's rights movement in Akron, Ohio in 1852, quote, Sojourner endured their protests and became one of the first feminists to call their attention to the lot of the black slave woman who, compelled by circumstance to labor alongside black men, was a living embodiment of the truth that women could be the work equals of men, end quote. And I think that's incredible if there's ever uh, an example, right, that start that could start a conversation and get people to say, okay, a woman can do it too, you know, it's, and, and to be able to work alongside men in your day job and to not have your abilities questioned by others, I think we can all thank Pastor Truth. Fantastic, Manuela. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been such a great discussion. And as we close out, I'm just wondering if you could share a major theme or a takeaway that you'll remember or want listeners to remember from this book. Sure. I'll, um, I'll, I'll go first and let Ashley have the last word. So I, 
as Ashley has mentioned, am also shocked by how much of what Bell Hooks describes in her book, written in 1971, 40, oh my God, 50 years ago, still persists today. And she talks about on um, page 91, she talks about how domestic labor was not treated as real work. And that's a really big one for me as a new mom. My husband and I have an incredible nanny, Marcella, who we call baby genius or baby G. And I credit our son's incredible physical and emotional health to her. I've, I've learned to be a, a better mom because of her. And we pay her on the books and we provide health insurance and a 401k. And we're the first of her employers in her nearly 20 years of working that have done so. So I want to recognize that we are fortunate to be able to afford that. But the flip side is the meat. This means that many Americans don't have nannies or women who are doing child rearing or other domestic jobs. Um, they're doing it without any recognition or remuneration in any sort of regulated fashion. And um, that to me is just utterly shocking and unfortunate. These people are raising our children. And the fact that we as a society don't value that work as valuable or value generating is just is so shocking. And so talking about intersectionality, Black and Latina women working in retail and restaurants and nursing homes and other you know, essential service sector industries that require physical presence at work, often for very low pay, have been disproportionately laid off during the pandemic's lockdowns and business closures. Um, and so I think that's why it's so important that we as women, as feminists and, you know, as Americans, that we support the American Families Plan um, that Biden is proposing um, to make sure that there can be a federal paid family leave policy. And so that the fact that that the work of raising children, whether you're a domestic worker or a, a parent, that is work and that it's valuable work. Fantastic. Thanks, Manuela. Do you have something, Ashley, that you want to leave as a takeaway? I have so much to say, but I'll keep it very succinct. Um, my biggest takeaway is that so much is still the same for Black women. I mean, we've had all these sexual revolutions. We've had, you know, race revolutions that have happened in the last couple of years. So I see what feminists are capable of. I see what the Black community is capable of in terms of making movement. But nobody is trying to make movement for Black women. Um, so you know, besides black women and actually black women's efforts are largely, you know, because of the way our society is structured, focused on helping black men. Um, as a matter of fact, the women that started Black Lives Matter are women and they're women, black women, um, queer black women. And they started an organization that has all this traction that started because black men were being killed. So this is the, the, the legacy of what the patriarchy has done to our community. And I guess my biggest takeaway is that um, as black women, we have to assert ourselves more. I mean, we have been seen and stereotyped as aggressive and masculine, 
But there are parts of that we need to embrace because you know what? Men rule the world. So if someone sees you as masculine, perhaps it's some sort of a compliment in a way. Um, And I think we need to truly be aggressive and truly assert ourselves um, in a way that makes us impossible to ignore um, in a way that puts us first. And I, I really hope that I see these prolific, influential Black women start to put Black women's issues at the helm of the Black community, um, which, you know, we're, we're at the forefront of so many movements, um, but we need to be at the forefront of our own movement. And um, it's funny, Dr. Fauci was talking about the AIDS movement and how um, gay people created their own movement that everybody else got behind. Well, we create many movements, social movements, um, you know, community movements, but they're never for us. So I I really would love to see um, my sisters get involved in our own progress, get involved in our own movements and prioritize ourselves. And that's my takeaway. That's what Bell Hooks is saying. You cannot shy away from the intra-community politics of gender because there's this larger suppression of race um, and we have to assert ourselves as black women. Um, That's my takeaway. Thanks, Ashley. Well, thank you again to both of you. That was such a rich discussion and I so enjoyed reading this book um, on your recommendation, Ashley, and having this conversation and listening to you as friends have this conversation with each other. That was beautiful. So thanks again so much for being here today. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. This was great. And it was really fun. So much fun. Like, <laughs> so just like Manuela said. <laughs> <laughs> so much fun. Thanks, guys. And thanks to listeners. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we'll be discussing the anthology Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde. Lorde is a poet and a searing cultural critic, and her famous essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, has been featured in many publications, including our text from a couple of weeks ago, This Bridge Called My Back. Sister Outsider was published in 1983, and along with Ain't I a Woman, it's a book that I recommend owning and reading and rereading. You don't necessarily need to read it before listening to the episode. Because it's an anthology of essays, it can be read a bit at a time, and it doesn't need to be read in order. But it's really essential reading, so I highly recommend purchasing this one and making it part of your mental and emotional library. So join us next week for the discussion of Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.